Please grab a Bible, turn there to Acts chapter 18, our attention this morning on verses 1 through 23. If you're new to the Bible, we're very glad that you're here. This is a safe place to learn how to read and understand God's Word. And if you don't have a Bible or don't have an ESV, which is the version that we use, you can pull out your mobile device and punch in Acts 18 ESV. We also have print copies available in the lobby for you at any time. Now, our series in the book of Acts, which we've been plodding through here, brings us to another action-packed chapter. After preaching the gospel to Greek philosophers in Athens, the, the apostle Paul, he's on the move again. And this time he is landing in what one scholar referred to as the, the Las Vegas of ancient Greece. The Las Vegas of ancient Greece, the city of Corinth. City of Corinth, this scholar who calls it the Las Vegas of ancient Greece goes on to write this. He says, Corinth had a reputation. It had a reputation for prosperity and licentiousness. Licentiousness. If you don't know what that means, it basically means license, doing whatever you want. <laughs> prosperity and licentiousness. He writes, it's a town where only the tough survive. Well, that sounds an awful lot like the actual Las Vegas actually as I read about ancient Corinth, I realized it sounded an awful lot like the place God has stuck all of us. <laughs> Sounds a lot like Southern California, a place of prosperity and licentiousness, a place where only the, the tough survive. That's the setting in which Acts 18 takes place in this morning. Uh, I have so much faith. I believe and I want you to believe too that God intends no accidents here. God intends to use this account of what he accomplished in ancient, Corinth, in ancient Corinth to provide each of us here with fresh faith for what he intends to do here in our city through us. So let's read Acts chapter 18 with eyes of faith. I'll read verse 1 through 23 and then pray. Here we go. Verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles, verse 7. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Verse 11. 
And he, Paul, stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them, verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch, verse 23. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. The very words of God, would you join me in a brief prayer for his help in understanding them? Lord, we now ask you to do what you're eager to do. To plant the seeds of your word in our heart that they might grow and bear fruit in our lives. So that's what we ask that you would do. For some here, Lord, you'll be sowing some seeds for the first time. For others, Lord, you'll be producing growth, watering what's already there. And so, Lord, we ask you what we know you wish to do, which is to make your word bear fruit in our lives. I pray, Lord, that I would be a faithful servant of Christ as I share what I have learned. I pray, Lord, that you would use my words to speak to the hearts of all my friends gathered here that those who believe might have their faith strengthened and that those here who do not believe would come to believe in your son for the first time. Make that the result of the preaching of your word today for your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just the other day, somebody uh, said something to me that I never thought I'd hear. You're a runner. Now, uh, you can tell by my build why that might be a little surprising. I've always been an athlete, all right, to be fair. Basketball and football were my main sports, which make a little, basketball not so much, I'm not that tall, but football, uh, over the years, I've played in a bunch of games, both official and unofficial, real games and pickup games. I've done a ton of weightlifting and strength training and field drills. I've done all kinds of athletic stuff, but I always hated running. In fact, if I was running, it was usually because I or my team were in trouble. Running is a punishment. That was my association with it, that you run as a punishment. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, you didn't like the chili cook-off, but you like that. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> 
I never understood runners either, okay? It wasn't just that I didn't like it. I didn't understand why anybody liked it, right? Cross-country team people, marathoners. Why would you want to do that? Running is so boring. You just run. It's not interesting. You don't, you know, there's no point to it because you don't score any points. Sure, it's probably challenging, but where's the thrill? Where's the thrill? That's what I thought until a couple years ago when I injured my shoulder and couldn't use my upper body for workouts, I began running around my neighborhood as a way to stay active. It was all I could do. So I set some goals, started to meet them. I experienced what I thought had always been a lie, the runner's high, the elusive runner's high, the endorphin rush you get from a prolonged, difficult workout. I finally experienced it, learned more about my energy levels and where I could push myself on a run. I ran farther and farther distances in shorter periods of time. Now, today, if I don't get in my runs, it bothers me. I'll even run like after my kids are in bed if I have to, which right now when it's so hot is actually a great time to run. I say all that to say, the person who said that surprising thing to me was right. I'm a runner. And one thing I've learned as I have ran is the skill of staying motivated. Because running, as you know, if you've ran before, is a repetitive and grueling activity. And if you want to go farther and faster, you have to find ways to stay motivated. As, as one writer writing about running, he observed, your willpower can fail long before your legs do. Your willpower can fail long before your legs do. And I think... That's an important insight for Christians to get as well. It's true for Christians as we serve God. Our willpower, our motivation to keep moving forward can fail long before anything else does. And when that fails, oh, we sink into ineffectiveness and despair. And one of the things I love about this passage as I've studied it this week is to see how God stays out ahead of his people's need for motivation. God's a motivator, an encourager. I mean, just look. Just look at how he does it for Paul in this passage. Verse 9. Conceivably, verse 9, this is a vision that Paul has of the Lord Jesus Christ when it uses that, that phrase, the Lord, referring to Christ himself, the second person of the Godhead, the Son. Look at what the Lord Jesus says to Paul in his vision. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. Christ would not have told Paul to be afraid if Paul wasn't battling fear. He wouldn't have told him to keep speaking unless Paul was tempted to silence himself. He wouldn't have reassured Paul that he was with him unless Paul was beginning to feel alone and abandoned. The Lord gets involved in Paul's life to keep him motivated for his mission. Now, every Christian is on a mission. You know the Sovereign Grace Church. We say this all the time. Every Christian is on a mission. By definition, every Christian is a sent one. Even if you live in your hometown, you are a missionary for the Lord, an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ, God making his appeal through you. We all are on a mission, God's mission, to spread the gospel and make disciples wherever he puts us. But we lose heart. Don't we? we cave into fear, we get distracted, we, we fail, we get overwhelmed by how messed up the world is and the, and the people that we're trying to help are. 
But here's the good news and the point of this passage and the key to staying motivated for the long haul. The key to staying motivated for the long haul is to stop thinking about ourselves and to remember that it is God who moves his mission forward. God moves his mission forward. He moves his mission forward through his messengers. He doesn't do it without you. No, he does it through you. God moves his mission forward, remembering that, keeping that in the front of your mind and in your heart is the way you battle to stay motivated. It's not riding on us. It's not riding on us. What God has called you to do is not riding on you. That's what you need to remember to stay motivated. Let, let me show you this from our passage. I'll give it to you in three points. I'm going to give you those three points as we go. How does God move his mission forward? That's what we need to remember. Point number one, God, God moves his mission forward by, point number one, God sends, he sends his messengers. He sends his messengers. Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, Silas, Timothy, these are all names we read the first few verses of chapter 18. They all arrive in Corinth at different times and for different reasons. Now Luke gives us no indication of why Paul came here. And of course, scholars love to speculate because Corinth was this, you know, important economic city and religion. There's all these things, but it doesn't I mean, look at verse one. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. That, that's it. No, no explanation. He simply writes that that's the next place Paul went, and why he went there doesn't really matter to Luke, and so he doesn't write why. No, he's just there. That's where he is. Priscilla and Aquila are the next people that show up, a married couple, and they arrive for very different— uh, he gives us the reason, because of a Roman order for all Jews to leave Rome. The, Claudius, the emperor at the time, sent all of them out, and so they leave, and they end up in Corinth. Paul catches wind that they're in town. He joins up with them in verse 3. They share both their faith in Christ and they share the, the same job. They're both tent makers, leather workers. And as the rest of Paul's letters bear out, this dear couple, oh, they're going to get mentioned throughout the New, uh, New Testament. They are very special people, even though they don't appear to have preached great sermons or done many great prominent things, but they're just there, faithfully serving, and they have a huge impact, even though a quiet impact throughout the New Testament. A very special couple, dear to him, an important key in planting and sustaining churches. And just to make a side comment, Christians, not just pastors and church planters and mission strategists, missionaries, but everyday Christians are key to planting new churches, like we prayed for earlier. And that's th this couple's testimony. So they're there. God brings them there through this, they're getting kicked out of their hometown. And Paul gets to work right away sharing the gospel in verse 4. He heads into the synagogue, as was his practice. There, there is a committed group of uh, Jewish people there, and he starts making his case for Jesus. He says, look, the Messiah you've been looking for is Jesus. And then his two other companions arrive from Macedonia in verse 5, Silas and Timothy. And again, we don't really know why. They just did. What we find as they arrive is that Paul is so occupied, that's what it says, occupied with the word, which meant like obsessed, consumed with it. Paul can barely do anything else. He just has to share and, and argue for the truth of Christ. He's so occupied with sharing the gospel, it seems like he hardly notices that those guys show up. But here's what we should pause and reflect on after verse 5. There's now at least five Christians in town who weren't there before. Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, Silas, Timothy. 
What does Luke, why does Luke include that? What does he want us to notice? Because like I said, he doesn't give us a lot of details about why they ended up there. He wants us to notice that the seeds of a new church are beginning to be sown. That's what's happening. All the pieces are starting to come together. The seeds of a new church are being sown. And again, if you've read more of your New Testament, you know that there's going to be a prominent, important church in the city of Corinth. God is sowing the seeds of a new church. And he provides, Luke provides enough details to get that point across. God is ensuring that there are disciples in town to share the gospel, disciple new converts, and establish a new church. These verses, as much as we are tempted typically to read the book of Acts as like a manual for church planting, it's really not. Acts is not a manual for church planting. It's a revelation about how God builds his church. That's, that's what the book is. This is, this is. There's not a bunch of tips and tricks and things to figure out. You're like, the, the point of Acts all, over and over again is God makes... God saves people and he establishes them in local church. This is a revelation, not a how-to manual. God sends his messengers where he wants them to go. And when we, when we begin to lose sight of that, when we begin to lose motivation, when we wonder ourselves, am I where I'm supposed to be? Am I where I'm supposed to be? Because to me, it looks like I'm just so ineffective. And I'm discouraged in my walk, in my witness. Oh, when that begins to to seep into our thinking we need to remember that god put us where we are you are right where god wants you to be don't question you will question at times but but push back against it you are right where god wants you to be he hasn't made a mistake you you, here 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 because he's set you here isn't i hope that's encouraging that's encouraging for me look the people in your life the people at your job the people in your in your classes at school those are the people god has positioned you to influence for his glory that's not a mistake. None of those people you know, that, uh, there's no mistakes here. Even the weirdos in your family and in your church, your children, those are the people God has given you to serve. You're not out of place, even if things aren't going well. You're not out of place. God has sent you there, set you there. And if he wants to send you somewhere else, don't worry. He will. <laughs> Don't spend too much time puzzling about whether or not you should be doing something else. Grow where you're planted, right? Right now, he's put you here. Right now, he's put you here. And he has good works. End of Ephesians 2. He has good works for you here that he has prepared beforehand to give yourself to. Today, tomorrow, next week. Right where he wants you to be right where he wants you to be, and you have everything you need right where you are. You're not under-resourced. Look, God has given you two things that are really important. God has given you two things, if you're a Christian, two things to resource you. He's given you his word, right? Not not only your, your Bible, the whole thing, which could feel a little overwhelming, but just the gospel itself. I mean, that's really, when Acts talks about the word, what the word is, it's, it's the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, and you have it. If you're a Christian, you believe it. You have it. You have God's word, and you have his spirit. So don't, don't think that you're under-resourced. You're where God wants you to be, and you have the resources God wants you to have. 
And that, oh, there's a world of motivation just in realizing that I'm a sent one. I'm right where God wants me to be, and he's outfitted me with the things I need to do what he wants me to do. That's true of each of you, each of us this morning. Okay, God sends his messengers. Point number two, how else is God moving his mission forward? Point number two, God encourages his messengers. God encourages his messengers. Now, as we've come to expect in Acts, as we've read it, the preaching of the gospel, which there's plenty of that in Acts chapter 18, the preaching of the gospel always produces two things. It always does. I mean, just like clockwork. Two things. It always produces faith in some people and opposition in other people. Always. Some people love the gospel. Some people receive it. Some people hate it, reject it, question it. But nobody's neutral. Nobody just goes, ah, this this doesn't really matter. They do something with the preaching of the gospel. They either believe the news or they reject the news. That's how it is. Either we believe that Jesus died for our sins and he now reigns as Lord and we should follow him and abandon everything else in this life, or we don't believe that. And therefore, the claims of the gospel, which are that you should believe in Jesus and forsake everything else and follow him, that is a threat to you. That, that threatens your autonomy. And so the gospel is, in that way, a very divisive message. It's a welcome and an invitation, but it also is divisive because it calls you to abandon your own pursuits. And follow Jesus. So the first response Paul gets here is opposition. Verse 6, and when they opposed and reviled him, not a surprise. He, he doesn't say, he says when they did it, as if Luke was assuming that they would at some point. When they did it, you knew this was coming. When they opposed and reviled him. Now, again, we should assume that this is an occasion for discouragement. As mature as the Apostle Paul is, and as much as he expects to suffer, it's got to still be discouraging when this happens. I mean, think, think again, Apostle Paul here, how does it feel when you risk your life to share what you believe is the most important news on the planet, and is the best thing for everybody to believe, and to be called a liar? be hated for it. Very discouraging. Very discouraging. His response is a bit surprising. Paul doesn't appear to be discouraged. (laughs) Instead, he kind of just lets them have it. (laughs) Second half of verse 6. Testifies. Says to them, after shaking out his garments, shaking the dust out of his garments, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. Paul, Paul has fulfilled his duty, right? He, he had a duty to go to the gospel, to take the gospel to the Jew first and then, then to the Gentile, which again, when we read the book of 1 Corinthians, that's what he says in chapter 1, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. That's exactly what he's done here. But since the Jews are rejecting him, he has no problem moving on to see if the Gentiles are more receptive. He, he's looking. He's, he's looking for where God is working. That's what he's doing. He, he's not going to work ground that doesn't want to be worked. He's looking for where God is working. He's not going to beat his head against a wall with people who don't want what God is offering them through Christ and the gospel. And this is, this is just good wisdom. In fact, we should learn from his example. Really, if somebody isn't interested in the gospel, we're free to leave them alone, assuming that we've faithfully shared it with them. If they, do, if they know it, accurately, but they don't want it, it's 
okay to move on. That's what Paul does. That's what Jesus instructed his disciples to do. I mean, this, this dusting off your feet, dusting off your jacket should sound familiar for those of you who've, uh, who are familiar with the Gospels. Jesus said, this is what you're to do when people won't listen to you. Yet even in the midst of this, we'll say, failure, opposition, Paul gets to see a few converts. I hope you didn't miss that as, as we moved through this here. If you look again, right there, kind of tucked into verse 7. Went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, and we should interpret that as somebody who came to faith, especially the fact that he welcomed Paul into his house. Crispus, who at that time was the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord and his whole household along with him. And then Luke just says at the end of verse 8, and many other Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So, what did the gospel do? It created opposition and converts at the same time. Preaching the gospel worked. God exercised his power through Paul's preaching to bring new life to these people. And yet, and yet, right after that verse, right after the verse describing the converts, we have this vision of the Lord Jesus visiting Paul. He's tempted by discouragement. Look, seeing fruit from your labors doesn't necessarily get rid of discouragement. This is important to remember here. Seeing fruit from your labors doesn't necessarily get rid of discouragement. Listen, we're good enough at being discouraged that we can find ways to be discouraged even if things are going well. Paul's still in danger here of losing heart, so much so that the Lord appears to him in a vision. And I really want to slow down for a moment and study the words that Jesus speaks to Paul here, because I do think that there is a lifetime of encouragement in these words for us as well. This is a very sweet scene. Think about this, a very sweet scene as the Lord visits one of his servants and speaks to him personally and cares for him. I'm so thankful that the Lord made sure this was in our Bibles, that this is the Lord cheering Paul on in a moment of despair. Verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. I'm with you. No one will attack you or harm you. I have many in this city who are my people. Words that put steel in Paul's spine. Oh, just think about them. Think about each phrase. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. One of God's most popular words of reassurance throughout the whole Bible. Don't fear anyone, he says. Don't fear anyone. I'm in control. I'm in control. Everybody answers to me, the Lord says. I have you. I have you and this whole situation you're in in the palm of my hand. So so don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I already know the end. Go on speaking and don't be silent. Keep doing what you know I've called you to do. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. Here's Here's your calling, Paul. Here's your calling, Christians. Testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the highest and noblest calling I can give you, to tell everybody about me and what I have done to save them and show them my grace. Testify to it. 
Be a spokesman or a spokeswoman for me. Share this message of peace and forgiveness and joy and life through faith in my son. Don't be silent about that. Why? Next phrase, for I am with you. I'm with you. You're not alone. You're not alone. Even though it may feel like it at times, you're not. You're not alone. I'm here. I'm with you. I'm here to strengthen you, guide you, empower you. I've put my very spirit within you. I'm with you. You're not alone. And then that very last phrase, I have many in this city who are my people. I just imagine how that would have landed on Paul. So many people saying, no, no, I don't want him. I don't want what you're offering, Paul. I don't want what Jesus is offering. And into that, the Lord says, Paul, (laughs) I have many people here who are mine. You just haven't bumped into them yet. Oh, that phrase, I have many people in this city. In a way, that's where our church gets its name. That's sovereign grace, right? Sovereign grace. That God is saving people and he can't be stopped. If God, if, if the Lord appeared to us in a vision and took us up east, back that way, up east to Orange Hill, and we looked out over the city, that panoramic view from up there, if you've ever been on the hill, and we looked out over the city, the Lord would say to us, as we're standing there discouraged, oh, Lord, our church is small. We're not reaching a lot of new people. We haven't baptized anyone in a long time. We're wrestling with that. And the Lord would look at us, and he would just say, Sovereign Grace Church, I have many people in this city who belong to me. So go find them. And when you find them, welcome them in. Plant new churches for them to serve and grow. Ah, that's what the Lord's saying to us today. He, he wants that phrase to ring out in this church and in our hearts. The Lord has many people in this city. And so don't, don't fixate on the moral decay. Don't fixate on the moral decay in our city or in our state or in our nation or in our world. Don't don't focus on the corrupt leaders and corporations. Don't lose heart even over your own weaknesses and failures and your own lack of experience. Don't be dissuaded by your own lack of fruitfulness. None of that changes the fact that he has many people in this city. That phrase, oh, that phrase could motivate our mission here for a lifetime. I just, if I just said to myself once every week, the Lord has many people in this city who belong to him. That's what's going to keep us going. That's what's going to keep us going. Not, not better strategies, not more money, not more attractive leaders. Sorry, we just, there's Mike and Eric and I just can't do it. We're just not, we're just not going to be real charismatic, interesting guys. that the Lord has many people here. Oh, that keeps us going. That's why we keep trying. That's the Lord cheering us on. Look, in a way, this is what's wonderful about being a Christian and taking Jesus' mission as our own. In a way, the results are guaranteed. We sow the seed of the gospel, and God promises that it will bear fruit in the lives of our neighbors. Look, you may be one of those people this morning. Perhaps you're here and this is all new to you. You know that you're not a Christian, but this is all starting 
to make sense. You might be one of the people that the Lord has in this city. If you feel guilty for your sins and mistakes and you want to be forgiven. If you're afraid of death and what comes after. And you want to know that there's life on the other side of death. If you want to know that God isn't out to get you. And you want to taste his love and his care and his goodness then repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Turn from all of your pursuits and make Jesus your treasure and your reward and your goal. Look, the gospel, the good news is that you are ruined by sin, but Jesus Christ offers you today complete forgiveness, restoration, and redemption through his death on the cross. Your sins really are great, but his grace, his mercy is greater if you believe that then you are one of God's people in this city. And we share the gospel here every Sunday. We sing it, we read it, we preach it. Because we believe a thousand percent that God will use it to bring you and many others back into his fold. I don't know, I don't know that I think of God as an encourager tend to think of God as kind of like a, like a proctor of an exam, just kind of like looking at me, making sure I don't cheat. To think that God wants to cheer us on, just to encourage you, even though you've failed. He's, his attitude towards you hasn't changed. He wants to encourage you to keep going. He's, he's your biggest fan, your biggest cheerleader. He's cheering us on. And I just, even, even here in Acts chapter 18, his words to Paul keep Paul going for 18 months in Corinth. Look at verse 11. Right after, I just love this, right after the Lord speaks to him, verse 11. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. The Lord's encouragement kept him going. Wow. For us, want us to feel the Lord's encouragement as well. Because that's what will keep us going, friends. That, that will keep us going even more than our encouraging of one another, which is important. We should encourage one another. But we all need to feel God's heart for us, that sense of his, I've got you, I'm supporting you. This is going to work. Keep going. Oh, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. You're not alone. The Lord is going to save more souls and you have a part to play. Feel the Lord's encouragement this morning. Point number three. How does God move his mission forward? He protects. Protects his messengers. God protects his messengers. I look back with me again. The Lord's words to Paul in verse 10. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. You're probably wondering why I skipped over that earlier. Now I'll tell you why. <laughs> that's the one part of this vision that's very specific to Paul. 
it's one part of this vision that's very specific. The Lord, Lord doesn't promise to spare his people from all suffering. And if you have uh, seen what has happened to Paul in Acts so far, he already has not been spared suffering. There have been times when he has come to harm. This is not a promise for all Christians for all times, even though I'm sure we would like it to be. I'd love to be able to claim that promise and worry that I'd never be in a car crash or anything like that. But you, can't, you cannot do that here. That is a very specific promise. No one will attack you to harm you in this city right now. It's a localized promise. But why is God doing that here and he doesn't do it at other times? Why does he promise that here but doesn't promise it at other times? I have a very disappointing answer for you. That's for him to know. I don't know. <laughs> it's okay as a preacher to say I don't know sometimes in case you're wondering. I don't, I don't know everything. This is not, no surprise to all of you. The Lord knows why he decided in this case to protect Paul from further harm and to save it for another time, I suppose. And God protects Paul here, and in a way, God is protecting us all the time. Now, the missionary David Livingstone had a, a famously said in response to why he wasn't afraid to go into Africa uh, to share the gospel, he said, I am immortal until the will of God for me is accomplished. And that's been said a bunch of different ways by different Christians over time. I'm immortal until the will of God for me is accomplished. And basically what that means is nobody's going to take me off this planet until God decides to. Now that's, it's just acknowledging that God is the one calling the shots in my life. God keeps us breathing, fed, clothed, safe, so that we can do what he's put us on earth to do. That's his protection now. But ultimately, safety is in the world to come, not in this world. We're not promised safety and security and comfort now. We're promised it in the world to come. That's when the promise of protection will become permanent, when Jesus comes back. But how does he protect Paul here? Well, quite remarkable. Verse 12, Luke writes that the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now, Luke plays a little fast and loose with his timelines here. We don't really know how much time elapses between these things. It could have been months, uh, months before they, they mounted this attack against Paul. Uh, and again, he, he spent a year and a half here, so this could have happened at any time in, in his year and a half there. The Jews who dislike his message have been scheming, and they hatch a plan to take him down. They bring him before a Roman tribunal. They try to get the government involved. Great idea. Let's get the government involved to stop this guy from preaching his gospel. Verse 13, here's their accusation. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And it seems likely that the law they're referring to isn't the Roman law, but the Jewish law. The first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. And I interpret it that way because that's how the proconsul, Gallio, responds, saying he's not interested in fussing about their, their names and laws and things like that. But look at how God protects Paul. Here's how it works. Paul doesn't even have to defend himself in court. He has a well, he, the, the judge ends up being his defense attorney, verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, and I, I love how Luke narrates it, Paul's like, and then the other guy starts talking. Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I'd have reason to accept your complaint, verse 15, but since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things, and he drove them from the tribunal. Didn't just kick them out. I mean, he marshaled his guards and they pushed them all out of the tribunal. Now, Paul doesn't have to speak a word in his defense. That's how much God protects him here. 
God arranged for this pagan judge to do, do all the work for him. But then something else surprising happens, and it's in line with God's promise to Paul from verse 10. I, I kind of missed this the first few times I read this. Notice how, so Gallio kicks them all out, and then they beat somebody, but they don't beat Paul. You would have assumed if Paul was there with them and they all got kicked out that they would have taken Paul and, I mean, they weren't afraid to, to mob rule here and uh, treat somebody harshly, but they don't do it to Paul. Unfortunately, another brother takes the hit. Sosthenes is his name. He was the ruler of the synagogue now, so between earlier in the chapter and now, it was Crispus, now it's Sosthenes. Uh, obviously, Crispus converted, so he probably was not allowed to be the ruler of the synagogue anymore, so there's a new ruler of the synagogue. He appears to have become a Christian because they beat him as well. And look at how dismissive Galilee is, verse 17 at the very end. He paid no attention to any of this. He didn't, he, he didn't care about Paul, didn't care about the Christians, didn't want to deal with their annoying squabble. But here it is. God, God used even Gallio's callous disregard to fulfill his promise to Paul. And then in his unsearchable wisdom, God decided that Sosthenes would suffer for the gospel here. So Paul is spared suffering and Sosthenes is not. And we should just remember again that God determines. He determines how much suffering each of us will face. He measures it out wisely, carefully. He protects us. Sometimes he's protecting our physical well-being, like with Paul here. Sometimes he's protecting our hearts and our faith, even if he's not protecting our bodies, like in Sosthenes' case. But whether he's protecting our physical well-being or our spiritual well-being, God is moving the mission forward by protecting us. He's capable of it. He's committed. And he's doing it. We're not in any serious danger. I don't know if you sense that. We're not in any serious danger. First and foremost, because our eternity is secure. The place that we will be forever, the place we're waiting for, we're going to make it there. And we're not in any serious danger. And because that's true, we can give ourselves to be witnesses to the grace of God while trusting that whatever troubles we face are handpicked by God for our good and to accomplish what he set out to accomplish. And at the very same time, oh, we can rejoice in our sufferings and we can rejoice in the times we're spared from suffering. Whatever it is, we should respond to it with faith and joy in the gospel and in God. Say it again. God moves his mission forward through messengers like you and me and the Apostle Paul, the brothers and sisters here. God moves his, mess, his mission forward through messengers like you and me. And I just want you to ask, just as a moment as we come to end here, are you discouraged today? Are you discouraged today? Are you, are you lacking motivation to serve God today? Are you uninterested in getting back up and trying again?
What is it? What is it? (laughs) Write it down somewhere. What is it that's weighing you down? That's discouraging you? Or whatever it is. Whatever it is. I pray that you personally would hear the voice of the Lord cheering you on. Remember, you're right where he wants you to be. Ah, believe that, please. You are right where he wants you to be. You have what you need, his word and his spirit. You have no real reason to fear. God has many people left in the city to save, and he's ready to use you to do it. Join me as I pray that the Lord would use those great truths to encourage us today. Lord, thank you for Acts chapter 18. Thank you for how the words you spoke to strengthen Paul as he went about strengthening the disciples, that those words would ring in our hearts and in our minds today. We don't want to be given into fear. We want to be people who are, are supported by a great confidence in our God and who put their peace in the world to come and not not in today comfort now lord i pray that you would help us to feel well equipped for the tasks that you have called us to we won't all do exactly the same things we have different gifts and graces and we rejoice in that but lord we do ask that we would make good use of your word and we would trust in your spirit. Lord, I pray that the the words of the Lord Jesus, that he has many in this city, that that would unite us as a church and motivate us as a church. Why are we continuing to love the city? Why are we continuing to serve? Why are we continuing to to share even though it can be uncomfortable and difficult? Now we can face opposition. Lord, I pray it would be because we hear the words of the Lord Jesus. I have many people in this city yet to save. Lord, use all these things to cheer us on that we might not lose heart but may keep going as you move your mission forward through us. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.